Well, good morning, Mago Day. My name is Trevor King. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open to Luke chapter 11. If you're new with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for some time now, uh, 10 chapters worth of time specifically. Um, I've had a number of people, as I've been preparing for today's message, I've had a number of people ask me if I'm nervous, if I'm nervous to, to preach and to speak in public. I know public speaking is particularly nerve-wracking for many people. In fact, several years ago, there was a study done that showed that more people are afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. Uh, as the great theologian Jerry Seinfeld said, uh, this means that at a funeral, more people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. So, you know, for some, public speaking just comes easily, and for other people, uh, not come easy. So, thinking about our passage today, prayer is similar, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy to pray, right? We've all been there. You're over at a friend's house. You've got to use the restroom, and that water starts to rise on you, right? You know, we're all prayer warriors in that moment, right? And there are other kinds of prayers that you might be familiar with in our culture. Some days you might identify with Bon Jovi that you're just living on a prayer, right? Maybe you've gotten confused at Christmas dinner, like Aunt Bethany, when asked to say grace and you bust out with the Pledge of Allegiance. Or maybe you identify with Jim Halpert when he prayed, Lord, bear me strength. All right, these are, these are strange prayers, aren't they? But they highlight a common challenge for us, right? That, that prayer, genuine prayer, can be elusive. It can be challenging. For many, prayer is misunderstood or neglected. That's true for many of us who follow Jesus, even. So what keeps us from praying? I think there are several things that can easily become barriers to us when it comes to prayer. We can become disoriented about prayer, confused in it. It's easy to get caught up in trying to answer questions about how long do I pray, how often do I pray, what posture should I pray in. We think we should feel a certain way when we pray, maybe. And so our confusion can often lead us to inaction. We can also become distracted from prayer, right? For many of us, prayer is that spiritual discipline that is easiest to put off when schedules and deadlines creep in, and an urgent life can give way to a prayerless life. Or we believe that we're just not the praying type, right? Prayer is not my spiritual gift, we think. We can be more useful doing other things for God than we can, for, we can praying, and so that can keep us from prayer. We can also become discouraged with prayer, can't we? Similar to confusion, uh, we can often feel like we're never quite doing enough when it comes to prayer. In his book on the Lord's Prayer, author Kevin DeYoung writes, Is there any activity more essential to the Christian life and yet more discouraging in the Christian's life than prayer? Maybe you feel discouraged about your prayer life, always wondering if you've hit the mark when it comes to prayer. We can also become discouraged when we feel like our prayers are unanswered. How many of us have prayed for something only to have them remain unanswered? We've prayed for years, and it seems like God has remained silent. Maybe your prayers have become laments, and you wondered, is God even listening to me? Well, whatever your relationship with prayer is today, I hope that this text, I pray this text, is an encouragement to you. We come to this passage, and we identify with the disciples, and we are asking Jesus, teach us to pray. And we need to pray. God commands us to pray. Why? Because he needs our prayers? No. No, he commands us to pray because he knows that we need him. 
DeYoung writes, we don't pray because God needs help running the universe. We don't pray to change God's mind. We pray because God has ordained means to accomplish his end. He has arranged things so that he will give more grace to those who petition him for it. God doesn't need prayer, but he uses prayer, just like he uses other means. He uses rain to grow the crops, sun to warm the earth, food to strengthen the body. In the same way, God uses prayer to do his sovereign work. In prayer, we are not instructing God as much as we are instructing ourselves. So yes, God commands us to pray, but he also invites us to pray. He welcomes us. The God of the universe welcomes us in. He draws us into himself, and he is not distant. He is not silent. He is relational. He is personal. He hears us, and he loves us. And this is what Jesus teaches his disciples in this passage, and it's the message for us today. This is our main idea today, that we can pray confidently and persistently because we have a good heavenly Father who hears us and who loves us. So as we dive into this passage today, I want us to look in this passage in four sections. And just as a side note, today's sermon is brought to you by the letter P. That's because I love you. Be blessed by that. Uh, we will first look at the priority of prayer, then the pattern for prayer, our persistence in prayer, and finally God's promise in prayer. So let's dive in. Number one, we see the priority of prayer. Jesus is praying in a certain place. When he's finished, one of his disciples says to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, and we'll stop there. What we see immediately here is that Jesus prioritizes prayer, doesn't he? Here you have the disciples again aware that Jesus has gone off to pray. This isn't the first time. This is a very familiar sight to them. Uh, in fact, Luke's gospel alone highlights Jesus' prayer life at least a dozen times. Philip Ryken notes that we should view Luke's gospel as really a, a series of private prayer times interspersed with the ordinary events of Jesus' daily ministry. In Jesus, the disciples, they see something unique, don't they? They see a unique, a special zeal and passion, a special intimacy with the Father, and they want the same thing for themselves. Now, in this day, it was common for rabbis, religious teachers, to teach their disciples a specific form of prayer. Evidently, John the Baptist did this, though we don't have his prayer recorded. But the disciples are aware of this practice, and so they're asking Jesus to teach them to pray. And why do they need to ask? That's the same reason we need to ask, right? Because prayer doesn't come naturally to us, does it? At least not to many of us. Now, I thank God for the many prayer warriors in our church who exude prayerfulness. You are a blessing to us. Continue. Keep it up. But for many of us, prayer is hard, and yet we absolutely need it. And Jesus affirms that prayer is necessary in his response to them, doesn't he? What does he say? He doesn't say, if you pray. No, what does he say? When you pray. He knows that they need it, that they would always need it. They'd never be beyond their need for prayer. Ian Bounds was a longtime pastor who wrote nine books on prayer alone. Nine books on prayer. And I'm struck by one of the statements he wrote. He said, to be little with God is to be little for God. To be little with God is to be little for God. This is instructive for us. Prayer is assumed in the Christian life. It's not the thing that we do when we don't know what else to do. It's not the thing that we do uh, when we've exhausted every other thing. It's the first work. Prayer is the first need, the first priority. 
Jesus takes the time to pray to the Father, and how much more do we need to spend time with our God in prayer? So is prayer your priority today? Is your heart more focused on doing for God rather than being with God? Consider again the question that the disciples asked, right? He says, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Is anyone going to say that about you or about me? Can someone look at our lives and say, teach me to pray like them? What a statement. Note something else here in what he says. When Jesus says, when you pray, the you here is a plural form of the word. He's he is urging and expecting his disciples to pray together. He's essentially saying, when y'all pray, right? This is a prayer for the entire community of faith. And so let's let this prayer teach us to prioritize prayer for and with one another, not, not just isolated by ourselves, but also within the community of faith. Jesus here prioritizes prayer, and then he teaches what to pray. When the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray, he's not teaching them how long to pray, or how often to pray. He gives them a what, what to pray. He's not giving them a prayer to memorize and recite. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But he's teaching them the right things to pray for. Tradition has long called this prayer, in Matthew's parallel account, the Lord's Prayer. But I think it's better titled the Disciples' Prayer. If you look at the prayer, this is not a prayer that Jesus needed to pray. It's honestly not a prayer that Jesus could pray, really. Jesus couldn't pray, forgive us our debts, right? Because Jesus didn't need to be forgiven. But we do. Now, this isn't a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's the prayer he teaches us to pray because he knows that we need it. And so here you have Jesus teaching us to prioritize prayer and then teaching us what to pray for. He gives us Number two, the pattern for prayer. What we have before us in verses two through four is the greatest prayer ever recorded. This is the greatest singer teaching us how to sing. This is the greatest soccer player teaching us how to make a goal. The greatest artist teaching us how to paint, even better than Bob Ross himself. Martin Luther called this prayer the very best prayer that ever came to earth or that anyone would have ever thought up. Now, it's not wrong to pray this prayer as it's written, especially when our hearts and our minds are engaged with the words that we're saying. But it doesn't seem that Jesus gave us this prayer to recite verbatim. Instead, he gives us the pattern for how to structure our prayers, how to prioritize our prayers. One author calls this the prayer that teaches us how to pray every other prayer. And what you have here is really two sections. In the first half of the prayer, it's really God-oriented, right? It's focused on God's name, God's glory, God's kingdom. And the second half of the prayer is focused on us bringing our needs to him. And this is a key reminder for us, right? Our prayers do not begin with us. They begin with him. So let's dive into the prayer and see the pattern for how we can pray. First, we see prayer's principal figure. What does he start with? He starts with the word Father. Immediately, we see here that prayer is relational. Matthew's account includes the pronoun, our Father. Prayer is rooted in our relationship that we have with our Creator. And Jesus, in teaching us to pray, is welcoming us, inviting us, directing us to the Father. We don't pray to some abstract idea. We're not hurling prayers into the universe, hoping the cosmos will hear us. No, we don't pray to our ancestors. We have a living God who reigns over all. He is the listening Lord. And he hears us, and he loves us. 
We call him Father because our relationship to him is one of childlike trust. And Jesus beckons us to come to our Father. Most mornings, I'm the first one up in our house. I'm an early riser, 5 a.m., solid, strong. Uh, it's the best time of day. Uh, and more times than not, I will be sitting in the living room, on the couch, coffee in hand, reading or working on something, and I'll hear down the hall the door of my three-year-old daughter's bedroom open, and she'll pitter-patter down the hall, stuffed animal in hand, and she'll come into the living room and jump right into my lap. She doesn't say a word. Uh, I don't make her say a word. I'm not making her go clean herself up. She doesn't have to write, recite anything to come to me. She knows that she's just welcome to come run into my lap. I delight in that. It's the best part of day. And she knows that she is free to come to me because I love her. And our Heavenly Father welcomes us because we are His in the same way. We come to Him needy, unkempt, unclean, and He scoops us up. He reminds us that we are His sons and daughters, bought and beloved. And so when Jesus says that we come to God and we call him Father, this is what he means. And this is something radical, right? He is saying we have access, direct access to God. And we can call him our Father. Your Heavenly Father loves you and he wants to draw you near to himself today. The second thing we see in this prayer is its purpose. He continues, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed means for something to be revered, to be magnified, to be adored. And so the first thing Jesus teaches us to pray for is that God's name would be honored above all. In this day, one's name stood for more than it really does for us. It summed up one's whole character. God's name stands for God himself. And so the prayer is for God himself to be known and glorified above all by all. And so while we can come to God freely... We don't come to God as equals. We pray to him recognizing that he is above all, unequaled, unparalleled in the universe. We come as the psalmist does in Psalm 96, which encourages us to sing to the Lord, bless his name, declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. For the Lord is great and highly praised. He is feared above all gods. When we pray, we come to the Lord in reverence and in humility. He is God and we are not. He is worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. And that is to be our posture in prayer. And that's why it's helpful, right, to physically put ourselves in a posture of humility and reverence. We bow our head. We get on our knees. We don't have to do these things. We're not earning favor with God by doing these things. But these practices are instructive for our hearts. They orient our hearts to a place of reverence and humility before God. And so we pray, first and foremost, for God's name, God's whole being, to be honored and to be glorified. And third, we see prayer's priority. Jesus says, your kingdom come. This is our priority, the kingdom of God. We pray for the kingdom of God to come. And when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, we are praying for the king to come. That the Lord Jesus would return soon and usher in the kingdom of God. Christian, this world is not our home. We are citizens of the kingdom of light, and we wait for a new heaven and a new earth. And until that day, when the Lord brings us home, we anticipate the kingdom in the way that we live. This doesn't mean that we have our heads in the clouds. It doesn't mean we don't care about the things of this world. Friends, we know that suffering is real, don't we? Injustice is all too common. Fear and brokenness are deep. 
pain and sorrow are not strangers to us. We look around the world and we mourn the devastating effects of sin, and many come into this room today with great, great suffering. But take heart, my friends. The kingdom of God is on the move, and Sunday is coming. And the day is coming when God will put down the forces of evil, and Christ will reign supreme over the whole earth. And we anticipate the day where the promise of revelation is true, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. That is what we anticipate today. And so we pray in confidence because the kingdom is coming, right? The kingdom of God is not dependent on us. It is coming. Jesus will return. All things will be made new. All sad things will come untrue, and peace will reign. And so we anticipate the kingdom. We pray for the kingdom. We demonstrate the kingdom and how we love God and love neighbor. And we proclaim and we keep proclaiming the coming king. And that's at this point in the sermon that we see a shift. We see a shift in Jesus' pattern for us. We've sought God. We've proclaimed him as holy above all. We've prayed, uh, prayed for God's kingdom to come. And now, for the rest of this prayer, Jesus teaches us to bring our needs and our desires before our Heavenly Father. The fourth thing we see in this prayer is its provision. Jesus says in verse 3, Give us each day our daily bread. If you've ever wondered if God cares about your daily need, look no further than this passage. Jesus teaches us that our Heavenly Father desires to give us what we need every single day. And so we need food, right? Every day. And Jesus is driving home this picture that we are daily dependent on our God. This has echoes of Exodus 16, right? God's people are in the wilderness. Uh, they need food. And what does God do? He provides manna from heaven every single day, just enough for that day to remind them that every single day he is their provider and he is caring for his people. He is rooting their great dependence on the fact that he is a loving father. In the next chapter here, chapter 12, Jesus will teach his disciples to trust in the father for their care. He'll drive this home even further. In Luke 12, 28, he says, If God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Don't seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. And so the invitation for us is to come. To come to our Father, to bring our needs to him, and to trust him. Does this mean that every prayer is answered? No. Does this mean that if we lack something that we think we need or that we want, that God isn't good? No. There have been plenty of Sunday mornings when I've prayed that God would give me this day my daily Chick-fil-A, and yet that prayer remains unanswered. <laughs> there are certainly things that we ask for that God doesn't give, right? It doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he isn't good. It means that we trust our Father to be a good and wise Father, and sometimes that means not giving us the thing that we ask for. This is why Jesus teaches us to seek first the kingdom of God. One writer defines prayer as interacting with the Lord by switching human wishes for his wishes as he imparts faith to us. When we come to God with a heart to exalt him, to seek his kingdom, he will transform our hearts to desire the things that he desires. And we can rest knowing that even in unanswered prayers, our Father is caring for us every single day. And so we pray for our daily needs, our daily bread. 
But don't miss the greater bread here, right? In John 6, 51, Jesus will explain, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, friends, our daily physical bread points to the eternal spiritual bread we have in Christ. And so our needs are both physical and spiritual, and we are dependent on God. We can look to God for both, and we can come to Him and pray and ask that He would provide as a good Father. This brings us to the next part of the prayer. We see next, it's pardon. In verse 4, he says, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, there are two things happening in this part of the prayer. First, Jesus is teaching us to ask for forgiveness. Now, I want to be clear about what's happening here and what's actually not happening here. This is not the initial prayer uh, for salvation, for justification. This is not the first time uh, an unrepentant person comes to faith in Jesus. That's not what he's saying here. This is not saying, this is not Jesus saying that Christians have to ask to be justified before God every single day. No, from the moment we put our faith in Christ for salvation, we are justified before God. We are made right before God. Romans tells us we are no longer condemned. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. But what Jesus is teaching here is that sin hinders our fellowship with God. Paul tells us in Ephesians not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but instead to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven us. On this side of eternity, the influence and the effects of sin are still felt, still present. There are times when our fellowship with God is hindered by our sin, And we need to run to him to be restored. And we repent and we cry out like David in Psalm 51 who said, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So Jesus is teaching us to ask for forgiveness. And second, he is teaching us to forgive others. Notice that the prayer is for us to forgive everyone indebted to us. Everyone who has sinned against us. It's not that we get to pick and choose, right? I'll forgive this person but not that person You have no idea what this person did. I can't forgive them at all. No, if you do a study of this text and you look at the original language here, the Greek word here for the word everyone is everyone, honestly. But this is hard, right? For many of us, this is the hardest part of the prayer. Some of you are thinking even right now that this sounds overly simplistic. You're thinking, you just don't know, you just don't understand what they did. And you're right, I don't. But Jesus does. The one who knows the situation, the one who knows the person that you're thinking about right now is the same one who's teaching us to forgive everyone. Now, I want to be really clear here. We are called to forgive everyone who sins against us, and the ultimate goal is for restoration. But there are situations where that may not happen on this side of eternity. Forgiveness may not necessarily mean that trust is restored. And forgiveness may not remove the consequence for sin in this life. Forgiveness does not mean we accept abuse. Forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting. And forgiveness does not mean we no longer feel the pain of offense. But when we forgive someone, when we choose to forgive someone, we are removing ourselves as the judge. We are refusing to let our past suffering justify present sin. And we are determining that we will do good to that person instead of evil. And so how do we do this? How does this kind of forgiveness work? Where does the power and the strength come from to forgive somebody like this, to forgive everyone? Well, it comes from first grasping the gravity of our own sin 
and it comes from grasping the beauty of God's grace to us. This is why Jesus starts with the part, forgive us our sins, right? Because we need to understand that we have been forgiven much. And when we do, we will be able to forgive much. Do you have joy in your salvation today? Or is sin hindering your fellowship with God? Run to him and repent, ask for forgiveness and be restored. Know that he is faithful to do it. Or maybe you need to forgive someone else. Maybe your fellowship with God is hindered because there is bitterness in your heart, unforgiveness in your heart towards someone, maybe even someone in this room. Pray that God would root your forgiveness in Christ so deeply that you would be able to forgive. And if you've sinned against someone, go to them and repent and be restored in fellowship. We come to God with our needs, our daily need for provision, for forgiveness. And last, we see this prayer's protection. He ends the prayer with, lead us not into temptation. There are two realities we have to understand from this part of the prayer. The first one is that we are prone to sin, right? As the hymn goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We are prone to sin. And second, we are dependent on God for protection from sin. This statement, you could rephrase this prayer to be, do not cause us to succumb to temptation. Don't let us be given over to it, to give ourselves over to it. It doesn't mean temptation to sin won't come. It will. But we pray that we would not give ourselves over to it. We pray for discernment to see where choices lead, where sin leads, and we pray for strength to endure, just as Jesus endured in the wilderness. This is a prayer for protection, that God would protect us from running back to the grave, and he would keep us on the path of righteousness. And this is a prayer that God would give us a heart that pursues, that desires righteousness, that loves the things that God loves. That we would just, as Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Christian, you are free from sin's dominion over you. Now live in that freedom by fighting against sin, by fleeing sin. This is one way that we demonstrate the kingdom of God. One way that we endure in our exile. And one way that we bring glory to him. As a Puritan preacher Thomas Watson once said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Indeed, may Christ be sweet to us today. May we taste and see that the Lord is good. And so here you have Jesus giving us a pattern for our prayers. Pray to your Father. Seek his glory and his kingdom. Ask him to meet your daily needs for provision, for pardon, for protection. And then Jesus teaches us to pray boldly and persistently by telling us a story. Number three, we see our persistence in prayer. Starting in verse 5, he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up and get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In that day food was scarce. Bread was baked each day. Uh, to meet the daily need. Also, the culture of hospitality was held in high regard, really to the point of being a, a a duty even. And so to approach a neighbor at this late hour meant risking waking up the family, right? What would the host do? Risk waking his children? Anyone who's put little kids to bed understands the dilemma here, right? Don't wake the baby. 
I've got a four-month-old at home. The most stressful moments of my day are trying to come when uh, she falls asleep in my arms, and I have to transfer her from my arms to the crib without waking her up, right? right? It's sort of a, do I cut the red wire or blue wire level of anxiety? Right? One false move, and it's all crashing down. Right? There's a good deal at stake here, and it makes sense. The neighbor doesn't want to wake the family. And it's not like he can just not answer the door, right? He can't just pretend to not be home. What is the house equivalent of reject call? I don't know. And so here it is, the middle of the night. After a while, the guest's persistence is going to wake everybody up. And the neighbor eventually does respond because the guest's boldness or shamelessness, the text could say, he has the nerve to make the request at all at this late hour. And so eventually the neighbor gets so tired of the interruption, he realizes it would just be easier to help the guy out. He doesn't do it out of neighbor love or the kindness of his own heart. He does it because he wants to be left alone. The guest keeps asking boldly and persistently until he gets what he wants. And that is the same kind of bold persistence that Jesus tells us to have when we come to our Father. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not making a statement about God's disposition toward us. God isn't annoyed with us. He's not a sleeping neighbor. He doesn't need to be badgered into helping us. No, this is a story about our disposition toward God. He is saying, come with boldness to him. Bring your request to him without reservation, without fear or shame or timidity. As the author of Hebrews says, we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through his blood. Unlike the man in bed, God is not asleep. He's not reluctant to hear you. He's not annoyed by you. He's eager, eager for you to come to him, eager to be helpful to you, eager to be a good father to you. The Psalms tell us that our God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He hears our cries for help, and he is with us in all of our troubles. I love the way Philip Ryken explains it. He says, prayer is not a way of getting God to do what we want or of persuading him to do something he does not want to do. But prayer is an audaciously bold request for God to do what he has promised to do. So when we ask God to hollow his name, to establish his kingdom, to give us bread— to forgive us our sins, and to save us from temptation, we may do it with shameless persistence. God may say no to our prayers, it's true. But we persist. We persist in our petitions to him until he answers them or until he changes our petitions to align with his good and perfect will. Friends, our prayers are always answered in the way that God sees best. And at the end of this parable, Jesus assures us that God will answer. In verse 9, he says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. When we boldly pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, God has promised to hear us and to answer us. He tells us, ask, and seek, and knock, and in turn, God will reveal and give and open. He longs to give us what we need if we would only ask boldly and persistently. So do not grow weary in praying, brothers and sisters. If you're discouraged in your prayers today, don't give up. Persist in prayer. Endure. Be bold before your Father. He knows your needs before you even ask. So ask boldly. Persist in praying for people to be saved. Persist in praying for those suffering. Persist in praying for strength to endure when your faith is under attack. Persist in praying for restored relationships, for wayward children, for damaged marriages. Jesus told us to have the audacity 
to keep telling our Father what we need, and so we keep praying with boldness and with hope. And if you're here today and you do not know God as your Heavenly Father, Jesus bids you to come. He says, ask in faith, and he will give. Seek, and you will find him. Knock, and you will be welcomed in. God will not ignore the humble cry of his image bearer calling out for mercy. So cry out to him. And this brings us to our final point. Number four, we see God's promise in prayer. Verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to learn, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now here we have a ridiculous question from Jesus, and I think it's purposefully ridiculous. It's unthinkable that men would give such evil gifts to their kids, right? And that's his point. Even evil, sinful people give good gifts to their kids. How much more will our Heavenly Father, who is good and perfect and wise, give good gifts to us? And we're not left in the dark about what that is, are we? He tells us the good gift of the Father is not a what, but a who. He will give us His Holy Spirit. Now I want to briefly highlight three gifts that are bundled up with the gift of His Holy Spirit. First, the Holy Spirit provides God's presence. When Jesus promises the Spirit, he is promising that God himself will be with us. This is the promise Jesus gives his disciples in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel when he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. How can Jesus be with them if he's about to ascend to the Father? Because of this promise right here in this passage. God's Spirit will be with them, and he will be with us. Here in this passage, the Son promises that the Father will give us the Spirit. See the Trinitarian nature of prayer here, the Father, the Son, and Spirit. All three are involved. We get all of God in prayer. So Christian, even in your darkest moment, God has not abandoned you. There is never a moment in the Christian life when you are completely and utterly alone. God is with you. John tells us the spirit of truth dwells with you and will be in you. And so what more do we need to be in the presence of our God? He draws near. The spirit takes up residence in our hearts. He brings us new life and new loves. And second, we see the Holy Spirit provides wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, it tells us that we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. The spirit reveals the truth of God. He opens our blind eyes. He revives our dead hearts. He helps us to understand the very word of God, Right? The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power of God to those being saved. And that is the work of the Spirit in our lives. So pray that the Spirit would illuminate the word to you. Ask him to reveal to you his truth. Like Solomon, pray for wisdom and know that God is faithful to give it if we would pray and ask. And third, the Holy Spirit provides assurance. In Ephesians 1, 13-14, we read that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We have assurance by the Spirit of God that we are His. Romans tells us that His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are His and we can rest in the assurance of His Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle wrote, The Holy Spirit is beyond doubt the greatest gift which God can bestow upon man. Having this gift, we have all things, life, light, hope, and heaven. Having this gift, we have God the Father's boundless love, God the Son's atoning blood, and full communion with all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. 
Having this gift, we have grace and peace in the world that now is, glory and honor in the world to come. Amen. Our Father, who is greater than any earthly father, gives good gifts to his children. He gives us the greatest gift of his spirit, and with his spirit we have his presence, we have his wisdom, and we have his assurance. And so, my friends, I offer three points of application for us today. First, pray. We need prayer because we need the Father, right? So seek to spend time with him in prayer. Come to him boldly and confidently. If you're not a Christian, this is the invitation. Call out to him in prayer, and he will bring you in. Number two, persist in prayer. See how simple these are? Even when you don't know what to pray, don't neglect it, right? Like the shameless neighbor, keep on praying. Don't let confusion or distraction or discouragement lead you to inaction. But pray. Friends, we do not need more personalities or influencers. We don't need more rock star pastors or angry bloggers or savvy politicians. We need more people of prayer. So let's pray. Let's be people marked by prayer. Desperate, bold, persistent prayer. And three, trust God's promises. He will give you the Holy Spirit. He will give you his loving presence, his counsel, his blessed assurance that you are his. Rest in that promise today. Pray knowing that you pray to a heavenly Father who is working out all things for the good of those who love him. And so how do we start? Where do we start? We start right here. Let this prayer teach us to pray. See our dependence on God and come to him every single day for our daily need and trust that he will give us all that we need because he loves us. And he demonstrated his great love for us through the one who is teaching us to pray, Jesus Christ. God in his mercy sent his son to bridge the gap between us and the Father so that we might be able to come to him as his child and cry out, Abba, Father. And now we have confidence because the Son sits at the right hand, interceding for us. When we pray, he prays for us. What a glorious thing. Ultimately, the heart of this prayer is summed up in another brief prayer that we find in the final words of Revelation when the Apostle John prays, Come, Lord Jesus. Indeed, that is our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And when the final answer of that prayer comes to fruition, we will find ourselves in the glorious presence of our Savior, and our faith will be made sight. And until that day, may we be a people marked by confident and persistent prayer, because we have a good Heavenly Father who hears us and who loves us. Praise be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, indeed, you are glorious and you are great, greatly to be praised. We exalt you, O Lord, because you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And we pray, just as our Savior taught us to, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you would give us today our daily bread. You would forgive us our sins. Help us to forgive others. And you would not lead us into temptation, but Lord, protect us. Give us a heart for the things of God. We pray that you would be magnified and that you would be glorified. And Lord, even as we turn to the supper, that you would be given all the glory due your name because you are worthy of it. We look to you. We are desperate for you. We pray that you would have your way in us. And we ask this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.